few weeks, then you know that Pastor Gary, our senior pastor, he actually finished a series last week called On Trial. And he talked about the various kinds of trials that we face, not only in our daily lives and our everyday life, but also in our walk with God. And as he was talking about those trials, he talked about different kinds of trials. We face trials of temptation. We face trials of sifting where the enemy sifts us to see if we really believe what we say we believe. And then, of course, last week he finished by talking about trials of purging or trials of pruning. And as he closed the series last week, I really found myself just kind of meditating very hard on the message that he brought last week. Because as he talked about the trials of purging and pruning, what he talked about was how God wants our lives to be fruitful. God wants to produce fruit that is evidence on the outside of our life of what God is doing on the inside of our life. And so when God looks at our life, in order for us to become more fruitful, he begins to prune away and cut away the areas of our life that aren't fruitful. Or maybe we've been fruitful in the past, but we're still trying to get by tomorrow on yesterday's fruit. God looks at that and says, I need to cut that away because I got more fruitfulness for you. I got more productivity for you. I got more success for you. And there's more of my purposes that I want to develop in your life. So I'm going to prune away those things. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about pruning and God cutting things in our life, sometimes we tend to look at that as this really bad experience and it's like a punishment from God. But in reality, if we submit ourselves to the process, what we'll find is that God wants to cut things out of our life that he doesn't want to be there anymore so that in the future he can take us to better places. Does anybody believe that? So we talked about that last week. And I really felt in my heart when we got to the end of that message, the thing that I was meditating on throughout the course of the day was just this idea of, God, is there anything in my life that is currently there that you don't want to be there? Is there anything in my life that you're wanting to cut away to produce your nature? Or more specifically, is there areas of my life, are there areas of my life that aren't fruitful or aren't producing your nature, maybe producing my own fleshly nature, and you're wanting to cut those things out so that I can be more like you? Are there any areas of that, like, or any areas like that in my life? Because God, I want to be totally, wholly, completely surrendered and sold over to you. I don't want you to just be my savior. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That was what I kept thinking about. And that was kind of like just something that stuck with me all day last Sunday as Pastor concluded that series. Well, coincidentally, last Sunday was my daughter's birthday. She turned three years old. So we went home and we kind of celebrated her in the afternoon and into the evening. And then when it came bedtime, we have a bit of a routine with my daughter. We'll go into a room, we'll tuck her into her bed. And then we have a couple of storybooks that she likes. She'll choose one of those books. We'll read that book to her. We'll get finished reading the book and then we'll pray. And as soon as we get done praying, and I have this very specific prayer that I pray almost verbatim every night because I want her to know it so that way she'll figure out what we're talking about. So I pray almost verbatim the same prayer every single night. And then as soon as we say amen, she looks at me and she says, amen. And then right after that, I look at her and I do what any good father does. I smother her with about 100 kisses. And then I say, baby, I love you with all of my heart. I love you with all of my heart. She hears me say that every night before she goes to bed or when she goes to bed. And so, you know, I say that all the time. And then as soon as I said it on Sunday night, I got up, I walked out of, our room, out of her room, and boom, it just hit me like a ton of bricks with that thing that I had been thinking about all day long. I tell my baby girl, I love you with all of my heart. Like there's nothing in me that would not protect you and provide for you and see to it that you have the very best life you possibly can. There's nothing inside of me that doesn't want to see you walk into God's very best for your life. Because as parents, isn't that what we want? We want to love our kids with all of our heart so that they can have the very, the very best life that God has for them. 
But I sat there and I thought about that and I said, you know, I say that to my little girl. But as I've been asking God, God, are there areas of my life that aren't pleasing to you? The question I found myself asking is, can I say to God, God, I truly, honestly, really love you with all of my heart. Can I really say that? And I know for all the guys in the room today, like maybe those aren't words that's kind of mushy-gushy. That's not maybe stuff that you would say on a regular basis. Oh, honey, I love you with all of my heart. Maybe that's not you. That's not how you kind of roll or operate or speak to the people that you love. But I got to thinking about it. If I can say it to my daughter, I ought to be able to say that to my God. God, I truly love you with all of my heart. And I sat there and I thought about it and I thought, is it true? Can I truly honestly say that with all of my heart? You know, Jesus said this when the rich young, rich young ruler approached him. He talked about what's the most important commandment. The rich young ruler fired it right back at him. He said that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said you rightly replied. That's the greatest commandment, that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Jesus could have said love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, your mind, and your strength. But instead he took it a step further very specifically and said love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with everything you have. In other words, don't let your heart become segmented and divided. Don't let it become divided and devoted in different directions. Love me with everything that you have. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus said that, I think it's kind of important and maybe I should do it. Anybody else? So if that's what he said, then maybe we need to learn how to give God all of our heart, make sure that he is fully the Lord of our entire lives, and devote all of ourselves to him. And as I thought about that idea of having a full, loyal heart, I was reminded of this song that we used to sing when I was a kid in church. And it comes straight out of Psalm 86. I want to focus on Psalm 86, specifically on two verses this morning. And I want to read this to you because the psalmist had a lot to say about this in Psalm 86. Starting in verse 11, he said, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all of my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. We'll come back in a minute and we'll talk about what all that means, and I want to walk through that, but I want to talk this morning about an undivided heart, an undivided heart. How do we have an undivided heart? How can we make sure that our heart is not divided and devoted in different directions, but wholly, solely, completely, 100% given over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? How do we do that? I think the psalmist gives us some details, some instructions, some ingredients for how we can get there. And I want to talk about that this morning. The very first thing that we say the psalm, see the psalmist say in verse 11 is he says, Teach me your way, O Lord. I love that word teach. It's very, very... Specific. He doesn't say, show me your way, O Lord. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. That word teach, it's like an, a confession, an indication that, God, you know some things that I don't know. It's like you're the teacher and I'm the student. And it shows us that the very first ingredient to finding God coming in and taking over and possessing our entire heart, being the Lord of our entire heart and not having an undivided heart, it starts from this place of humility where we humble ourselves and we say, God, I don't have all of the answers. Now, I don't know about you. I know that there are many people here that you're probably more educated than I am. I definitely know that there's people here that you have more life experience than me. You've walked through some things that maybe I haven't walked through yet. But I don't know, maybe we can just kind of take a moment, humble ourselves and admit really quickly, if you're willing, is there anybody else that would just say real quick, I don't have all the answers and I've found out that I don't know everything. Is there anybody out there? 
Okay, great. Hey, look, we're on the same page. All right. So here's the thing. The psalmist stops and he says, God, I recognize that I need to be the pupil. I need to be the disciple. I need to be the student. And I need to allow you to be the teacher. And there's something about a teacher that becomes more qualified to instruct you. Why? Because they're educated, because they have the experience, and because there's an authority that's set in place that says, you know some things that I don't know. There are things that you can teach me that I in and of myself do not already know. So therefore, I humble myself, I submit to your authority, and I recognize that if, in order for me to get to where you want me to go, I need to listen to what it is that you have to say. I love the position of the psalmist's heart. This, after all, is the man who was looked back upon as the guy who had a heart after God's own heart. He was recognized as being that person, the man after God's own heart, David the psalmist. And when we read this, we find out that there's a humility involved that recognizes God as the ultimate authority. I humble myself to, so, God, you can teach me some things that I don't already know. Teach me your ways that I may walk in your truth. Now... There's a couple other passages of Scripture that I want to refer to real quick here. If you look at Psalm 37.4, many of us know this passage of Scripture, and we're just going to refer to it real quick. You don't have to turn there. But a lot of us know Psalm 37.4 because we like what it is that God has to offer us. It says in Psalm 37, Delight yourself also in the Lord, or delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So many Christians love that verse because it talks about God giving us something. God's going to give me the desires of my heart. God's going to give me the things that I want, the things that I desire, the things that I think I need. That's what God's going to do. And sometimes we focus on the second half of that verse and miss out on the point of it, which is delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you look at that word delight in the original writings, it literally means to be pliable in the hands of God. It's like looking at God and saying, God, you're the potter and I'm the clay. Mold me, make me, shape me, smooth me out, work out the rough edges, do all the things that you need to do to make me into the finished product that you have for my life. That's literally what the attitude is there. And then it comes around and says, and once I've gone through that process, then you'll give me the desires of my heart. Can I tell you something today? God wants to teach us his ways, but we have to humble ourselves, submit to the process, and be willing to recognize that there's a lot of stuff we don't know that he knows, and he wants to work out some rough edges in our life. And if we'll allow him to do it, we'll discover the very best that he has for us. Amen? Now, I want to show you a couple other things real quick here that are very important. If you look at James chapter 4, we've been talking from the Old Testament. Let's move to the New Testament and see what we see here. In James chapter 4, James said these words. He said in verse 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. He resists those who say, you know, I think I got all the answers. I think I got this thing figured out already. God, when it comes to figuring out what my life is going to look like, I already have the answers. I've already charted the course. I already know I don't need your help. It's as if there's an attitude of pride there that God looks at and says, I, I resist those people. And it's amazing to me how often we will have a salvation encounter with God where we say, God, I want the security that you provide for eternity. But when it comes to following you with my life, no thanks, God. I already have all the answers. I know everything I need to know. I want to walk this out according to my way. And so therefore, I'm not going to humble myself. And sometimes what we find is that when we put ourselves in that position, we arrive at this place where it's like, you know, I believe in God, but I don't feel like he's working on my behalf in my life. A lot of times that's because what we've said is, God, I want you as Savior, but I certainly don't want to make you the Lord of my life. I don't want you to teach me. I don't want to humble myself. And God says, okay, then I resist those who, who are proud, who are unwilling to humble themselves. But the Bible says that he gives grace to the humble. 
So if we can look at him as the teacher, if we can look at him as the potter and submit our life before him, then we'll see him mold us and shape us. James goes on in chapter 4 and in verse 10, and he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Not we lift ourselves up, but he will lift us up if we'll humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. God, you have things that you want to teach me that I don't already know. So I humble myself, I choose to go your way, and I want to listen to what you have to say in my life. Now, let's move on because I want to show you the second part of this, okay? It says, continuing in verse 11, teach me your way. Teach me your ways. That word way, it doesn't stand out to us in the English, but if you actually go back and you look at it in the Hebrew here, it's this Hebrew word derek. And what it literally means when it says way is a path or more specifically, a road. So what the psalmist is saying, God, teach me your road. Show me your road. Show me the road that you have for my life. And again, when we talk about being a, a follower of Jesus Christ and not just making him our savior, but making him the Lord of our life, so often one of the things that we find is that people say, God, I want the security for eternity that you provide in being my savior, but I'm not quite willing to submit to the road that you have for me when it comes to following you and becoming a disciple and making you the Lord of my life. Now, let's go on a little bit because when you see that Hebrew word there in Psalm 86, that word derek, which means a road or a path, where else do we see it? Well, we also see it in Isaiah chapter 55. And I'll refer to this, you don't have to turn there. But as Isaiah 55, he was the prophet, he was the mouthpiece of God to an entire nation. Isaiah wrote these words in verse 9. He said, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, it's that same Hebrew word, direct, my, ra- my ways, my roads, my path, higher than your ways or your roads or your path. And I want to point this out to you real quick because Isaiah is making a very, very specific point here. He's showing us that there are two roads that we can choose with our life. God says, my ways, my direct, my, my roads, my paths are higher than your ways, your roads, your paths. So in other words, there's God's way, God's road, God's path, and then there's our way, our road, our path. There are two paths that we can choose. We can choose to go down God's way or we can choose to go down our way. When I was thinking about this earlier, I thought two ways. Usually I tend to think of it like, well, there's God's way and there's the devil's way. But that's not the way Scripture says it. Scripture says there's God's way and then there's our way or my way. And I think the reason why it's worded that way is because we all understand that when we come into relationship with Jesus that we are born with a sinful nature. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfection. We are of a sinful nature. So if left to our own ways, our own devices, our own impulses, our own instincts, we will respond with a sinful nature. We will approach life in a sinful way when we choose our own path. So essentially you could say that when we choose our own way, we're not choosing God's way. We're choosing the way of the devil. That's kind of a strong word, right? But really, that's what's being showed out and pointed out to us here by Isaiah. There's two paths that you can choose. But again, that's the Old Testament. What does the New Testament have to say about this? Jesus talked a little bit about this in John, excuse me, let me slow down, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. He's talking about two two different roads, two different ways. And there are many... Who go by it? He's talking about the wide gate and the wide path. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus is pointing out that when it comes to his way and his road, we have the option in our life to choose which direction we will go, which path, which road we will take. 
If you know your Bible, if you know your Old Testament, you know that God said to Abraham, he said, look, Abraham, before you I set two paths. There's the path of blessing and the path of curse. Choose blessing. I want to say that if you want to choose blessing in your life, if you want to see God bless your life, don't choose to take your own road. Don't choose to take your own path and don't choose to take your own way. Choose God's way because his ways are always higher than our ways. Amen? Now, if we understand that, then we can realize that with every choice that we make in this life, we get to choose to take God's way, God's road, God's path, or our way, our road, and our path. You know, Jesus was saying that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. The wide gate and the broad way is always the easier choice in our life. Think about this for a minute. If you want to follow Jesus, one of the things that you're going to find is that you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to deny your flesh. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow him. And haven't you found that when you first started walking with God, it was a sacrifice. It wasn't easy. And for a lot of people, what we do is we say yes to Jesus and we give up on our walk because we find out that it challenges us. The road isn't as wide as we want it to be. The choices aren't as easy as we want them to be. That's why we can't do it in the flesh. We have to overcome by the power of the spirit that's always alive and at work in us. But in saying that today, I want to just point this out to you because I think it's so important that we all grab hold of this. When Jesus talks about the wide gate and the broad way, he says there are many who enter that way. What he's talking about literally is a path of destruction, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. And when it says it's a broad way and a wide gate, literally he's showing, he's painting this picture to us that it's almost always the most convenient and easiest choice that takes us down that path. Have you ever thought about this when it comes to the choices that you have to make in your life, the tough calls? Sometimes when you think about the rights and the wrongs of this life, if we were to just go according to what feels good, according to what makes us happy in this moment, a subjective kind of truth, if we were to live our life that way, live by our default instincts and our default feelings, what are we doing? We're taking the most convenient path because that's what feels right. That's what feels good. It seems like it's the easiest way to go. But Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. He's pointing out these two different roads, these two different ways. The psalmist says, teach me, I humble myself so that I can find your way rather than taking my own way because I know that my own way, it leads to destruction. We all have to understand in our life that when it comes to devoting our entire heart, our whole heart to God, God wants us to always choose the high road, his road, because his ways are always higher than our ways. And if we can do that, we'll find the truth that he wants us to walk into. Now, Let's continue on here because the very next thing is so important. He says, teach me, I humble myself to find your ways. Why? At the end of verse 11, so that I can walk in your truth. Truth. The word truth there is an interesting word because if we were to take a survey, if we were to go around the room and we were to ask everybody, where does truth come from? If you're walking with God, I think that you, I know what your answer will probably be. But in the world in which we live, if you ask the question, is there such thing as absolute truth? We live in a day and age where many, many people do not believe that there is an absolute truth out there. That truth is relative. That truth is subjective. That in this moment, if it satisfies my needs, if it makes me happy, and if it fulfills me in a fleshly way, then that must be truth for this scenario, for this situation. And that truth might change from day to day, from week to week, from year to year, through different seasons of my life. Because it's called relative truth or subjective truth. But can I tell you something today? There is absolute truth and it is found in the word of God. 
It's the highest standard of truth that we can live our life by. And if we will submit to the truth that is the word of God, what we'll find is that every single other idea of truth has to bow down underneath the highest standard of truth, which is God's word. I want to show you what scripture has to say about this. Jesus had a whole lot to say about this. If you look at John chapter 17, Jesus was praying for his disciples. He's in the garden. He's about to go to the cross. He knows that he's about to die for the sins of the world. And it's going to be a real heavy thing. It's going to be a difficult thing, a tough road to walk. But what's interesting about it is he realizes, I'm about to go, but my disciples are going to remain. So he starts to pray for his disciples. And I don't think he was just praying for his disciples then. I think he's praying for even us now because we today are his disciples. This is what Jesus says, John 17, verse 17. He says, Father, sanctify them by your, notice he says, your truth, for your word is truth. Why is he praying this for the disciples and even for us? Because he's saying, once I'm gone, don't let them fall into temptation. Don't let them follow the ways of the world, but instead sanctify them by your truth. I love it how he doesn't say by their own idea of what truth is. No. He says, God, sanctify them by your truth for your word. What's truth? Your word is truth. That word sanctify, a lot of us know what that word means. And, you know, if you're not familiar with that word, you might hear it and it sounds kind of religious. It sounds like Christianese, right? But when you hear that word, the thing you have to understand is there's a very deep meaning behind the word sanctify or sanctification. That word sanctify literally means set apart. And what Jesus was saying is that, God, when I'm gone, when I physically leave this earth, sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. Let the, word, the world look at them and let them know that they are set apart. They're different. They live their lives differently. They live their lives by a different standard of truth than the world does. Let people know that they're set apart, they're different. Why? Because they don't live their lives according to their own feelings, according to their own desires and their own standards of truth. They live their life according to your standard, your word, your truth, your absolute truth truth, set them apart by that. And today, you know, as Christians, we can find ourselves in this place where if we're sanctified by the word of God, we're living our lives differently. Continually, the world that we live in is pointing the finger at the way that we live our lives and saying, well, that's not right. You're living your life according to some book that was written 2,000 years ago, having no idea that it's the Holy Spirit of God that's inspired the whole thing. But what we have to understand is that when we reach a place in our life where the world looks at us and says, well, you guys are different. You guys live your life differently. You seem to live your life by a different standard, by a different set of rules. Congratulations, you are now sanctified according to the word of God. That is what God has asked us to do, to be sanctified, to be set apart. And if you look at the word church in the New Testament, you know, Jesus looked at Peter and he said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That word church in the Greek, it was this word ekklesia. And the word ekklesia literally means the called out ones, those who are called out. Jesus went on to say that you are called out of darkness and into marvelous light. We're sanctified by the word of God, called out of the darkness that the world lives in so that we can live in marvelous light. That's who we are. That's who we're called to be. And the way that we do it is by being sanctified or set apart by the, world, the word of God, which is the standard of truth which you and I are to live our lives by. So how is it that I have an undivided heart? How is it that my heart isn't divided and devoted in different directions? I humble myself to God so that he can teach me his road, his path that he has for my life. And why does he need to teach me about his path? So that I can walk. Paths were made for walking. Nowadays they're made for driving. But roads were made for walking so that I can walk in your truth. What standard of truth? God's word. God's word is the highest 
standard of truth. If we can align these things, we'll see all the compartments of our heart coming together, fully being devoted to following Jesus. But Jesus had other things to say about this as well. We see that in John 17, that we would be sanctified by God's truth or God's word. This is what it says in John 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now I'm going to stop right there for a minute because I want to tell you a story real quick before we finish that verse. I went to get my hair cut yesterday. I'm sitting in the barbershop and, you know, they got all these TVs on the wall there in the barbershop. And you have the people in the waiting area that are watching TV. You got the people who are getting their hair cut watching TV. And the show that was on TV, it was like this really goofy reality TV show. And it was actually pretty funny. But there's this guy who is sitting in front of an audience kind of like this, like on this stage. So picture a guy sitting at a table and he's taking a lie detector test in front of an audience, all right. And there's a guy that's administering the lie detector test or the polygraph. And this guy has two buddies that are backstage and they're whispering embarrassing questions into the ear of the guy who's conducting the test. So they're trying to get this guy to admit to embarrassing things that he's done in his life. So, you know, they're asking him some funny questions. You know, they're like, do you shave your back? And the guy's like, yes, I do. And then the guy that's administering the test, he sees the needle go like this and he's like, yep. That's true, he shaves his back, you know. It's like that kind of a thing. And so with every guilty, embarrassing admission this guy would make, his two buddies that were sitting backstage, they're like, the truth will set you free, man. The truth will set you free. That's a phrase that so many of us know. The truth will set you free. You can ask people from all walks of life, different convictions, different religions, different backgrounds. If you just start that sentence, the truth will set you, people say, free, because they know it. But how many people know that phrase but have absolutely no idea where it came from or who it was that said it? Do you know who said it? Jesus did. This is what he said. Let me read it to you again in John 8. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So how do we know, how do we know freedom? By knowing the truth. And how do we know truth? In verse 31, if you abide in my word then you are my disciples. And if you are my disciples, then you know the truth, and then the truth sets you free. See, I think that that just might be the most misquoted and used out of context scripture in all of the Bible. Because tons of people use it, and the way that they use it is to say this, I can live my life according to what I think is true, according to what I think is right, according to what I think makes me feel good right now in this moment, and that is a sense of freedom because nobody else can tell me how to live my life. It's according to my standard of truth, and that's true freedom. Well, let me just tell you, as a pastor, one of the saddest things that we deal with as a pastoral staff and team all the time are people who believe in Jesus who at one point in their life have had a salvation encounter and experience with Jesus where they said, God, I want you to be my savior. But then didn't choose to walk in his ways or on his path, found themselves walking in their own ways and in their own path, which as we already saw leads to destruction. And eventually they get to this place where they've defined their whole life according to their own set of truth, thinking it will bring them freedom, but they come and start talking to us about how they're a slave and they're totally in bondage to their impulses, their addictions, their feelings, their own lusts, all the stuff that's going on in their world. And you look at it and you think, how can you say that you are a follower of Christ when living according to your own standard of truth? 
And I don't say that today to put condemnation on anybody. God is a God of grace. He wants to walk with you. He doesn't want to punish you for the bad things that you've done. He wants to walk with you. He wants to help you learn to follow him. He wants to cut out the things out of your life that aren't fruitful and help make you more into his image. But the truth of the matter is, is we are absolutely kidding ourselves if we think we can walk through life according to our own standard of truth, hoping that we'll find freedom. Because true freedom is only found one way, when we submit our lives to the truth of God's word and make that the absolute standard that we live our life by and recognize that any other idea of truth has to bow down under the highest way, the highest standard of truth, which is the word of God. Amen. Everybody awake this morning? You guys good? Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And you go on to the end of verse 11, and the last part that I want to point out to you. The psalmist says, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. The NIV says, give me an undivided heart. But I love those words, unite my heart. The more you say it over and over, the funnier it sounds because when you say unite something, what you're saying is that you have to take multiple things, two things, three things, four things, and unite them into one. But he's saying unite my one thing, my heart. How do you unite one thing together? Really is what he's doing here is he's introducing this idea that it's entirely possible that my one heart can be divided and devoted in different directions. I thought of it like this earlier. Imagine ladies, where are all the ladies in the house? Everybody say hey. All right, that was kind of fun. <laughs> all the ladies in the house, you know, we're only, this is crazy, we're only a couple of months away from Valentine's Day. We'll deal with Christmas first, but how would you like it, ladies, if your husband, your boyfriend, your significant other, your fiance brought you a card? Let's just say you've been married for a long, long time. They brought you a card on Valentine's Day. said, honey, these last five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years of our life have just been absolutely amazing. And I have loved every minute of it with you. And after all these years, I've come to the conclusion, honey, that I love you with 75% of my heart. <laughs> because, you know, after taking an inventory, I realized that there is this other 25% that I don't really give you access to. But here's the thing, honey, it's most of my heart, right? I mean, it's more than 50 or 60%, it's 75, that's three quarters of my heart. That's most of it, like that's good enough, right, honey? Now, no man would really come right out and say that. But what's funny about it is that scripture tells us that man looks at the outside, at the exterior, but God looks at the, the heart. And see, so you and I, we don't want to come out and say, you know, God, there's this 25% of my heart that's not quite devoted to you. Here's the thing. God doesn't need you to tell him. God, all, God already knows. If there's a portion of your heart that he doesn't have access to, if there's a part of your heart that hasn't given him lordship or ownership or given the reins to in that area, he, he already knows that you don't have to come out and tell him. Now, it's a good start to come out and say, God, I recognize but God already sees, God already knows. And I want to just present an idea to you for a second because we talk about this idea that our heart can be divided and devoted in different directions rather than 100% completely, totally given over to the lordship of Jesus. There, there's a word that we use a lot, 
you know, just within Christianity when we talk about character, and it's this word integrity. And, you know, a lot of us, we, we kind of have our own idea of what integrity is. But there's a pretty popular definition that a lot of people like to use. If I were to say, what does integrity mean to you? What's the definition of that word? A lot of people say integrity it means that I'm the same person when nobody is looking as I am when everybody is looking. And I think that's a pretty good definition. But the word integrity actually comes from a singular word, integer or integer. So integrity is made up of multiple integers that are all equally healthy, giving the whole or giving the being integrity. So you could say that an integer is a fraction or it's a portion or a segment or a piece of the whole, an integer. So if something has integrity or if it's integrous, that means that every integer, every segment, every portion is equally healthy. So the whole has integrity. That's what integrity is. Now, I want to just throw this at you for a second because I know that many of you, you know, from history class, from cheesy movies that came out in the 90s, you know the story of the Titanic. And the Titanic was this really amazing boat, not just because it was a luxurious passenger ship in the early 1900s, but it was a very unique and original thought and idea in the way that it was constructed. The Titanic was built differently than other boats, and here's why. Because the Titanic had what was called a segmented hull. The hull that made the boat float, it was built in segments. And in theory, this would work, right? So if one segment of the hull was ever damaged by something like a, I don't know, an iceberg, um, then that area of the hull could take on water, but the rest of the hull wouldn't take on any water and the ship wouldn't sink. That was the theory behind it. And a lot of us live our lives that way. We look at our heart and we say, I, I can cut my heart into segments. I can divide it and I can devote it. I can have this part of my heart serving this master and this part of my heart serving this master. And I can have three or four different things holding on and pulling the strings of my heart. But God, you still have 60% of it. You still have 75% of it. And we like to think that we can still do that and walk in integrity when in reality, each integer of our heart is not healthy enough for the whole to have integrity. I heard a pastor that I have a huge amount of respect for a few years ago talking about this very thing. And he made an interesting statement. He said, you know what? If I go two days without spending time with God, I can see the difference in my life. He said, if I go one week without spending time with God, my wife can see the difference in my life. He said, if I go two weeks without spending time with God, my church begins to see the difference in my life. He says, because sometimes I can trick myself and fool myself into thinking that one area of my life can take on water and the boat won't sink. And isn't that what a lot of us do when it comes to the way that we walk with God? We give him access to certain parts of our heart, but not the whole. And we hope and we kind of trick ourselves into thinking that there's integrity there when in reality there's parts of our heart that are taken on water. Because here's the thing, a hole in a boat is the hole in the boat is a hole in the boat. And when the boat's taken on water, we can't trick ourselves into thinking that the thing's not soon going to capsize and go down. And the psalmist looks at this and he says, I recognize that it's entirely possible that my heart could be divided in different directions and divided and devoted to different things. But God, I don't want my heart to be devoted. I want to be able to say with everything inside of me that, God, I love you with all of my heart, with everything that I have. I want to be able to say that. I think it should be a goal of ours to be able to look at our relationship with God at any time, say, God, I give you full access to my whole heart. And I want you to point out if there are any areas of my heart that are not 100% completely 
wholly, totally devoted to you. Because if we don't give God access to all areas of our life, then we are fooling ourselves into thinking that the ship won't sink. Because God has so much more for us. In closing this morning, I want to read the last two verses from this passage to you real quick. Because I think they're very fitting in tying this together for the season that we're in right now. This is what the psalmist says, Psalm 86, verses 12 and 13. He says, I will praise you, O my Lord God, with all of my heart. God, I'll be able to say that I love you with everything that I have. I'll be able to look at my heart and know that there's nothing inside of me. Why? Because I've humbled myself. I've followed your way. I've stepped into your truth so that my life brings praise to you. I'll praise you, O Lord, with all of my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me. I think the reason he says that is because I look back and I recognize that if I went my own way and I followed my own set of truth, then my life would surely be led to destruction. Great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You might not know what that word means there at the end of that passage. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That word Sheol is just another word for hell. Um, hell is a pretty heavy word, pretty intense. I'm sure that somebody right now is like, this must be the hellfire and brimstone portion of the service. We're talking about hell. Hell is a word that we don't like to talk about in church that often because it scares people away. We like to focus on, you know, the positivity and the good thoughts of God's word that'll help me feel good about my situation. Well, here's some good news. God sent Jesus to this earth so that you and I wouldn't spend eternity in hell. That's, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty strong. And I know that some people will hear that and you'll say, oh man, do we, do we really have to go there? Do we really have to talk about it? A lot of people are scared to talk about that in church these days. The psalmist looked at it and said, I fear that if my heart stayed divided, that maybe my life would go down the path that leads to destruction. When we say that word hell, you know, it's the first Sunday of December. I know that right now and getting ready for Christmas, we want to talk about Christmas trees and you know, we want to talk about candy canes and we want to talk about Frosty and Rudolph and gingerbread cookies and the fun stuff, the things that make us feel good about Christmas. And that's the stuff that we'll do for about 24 days until we get to the 25th day and we'll give about five minutes to saying, okay, this season's all about Jesus. Can I ask you for some grace for just a minute to say something really heavy and really strong to you? This season's about one thing. God sent his only son to this earth so that you and I wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. He gave his best. He gave his son. I sit there and look at my daughter, whom I love so much, who I wouldn't, there's nothing I wouldn't do for her. God said, I'll lay my son down so that I can spend eternity with you. He loves us that much. When we arrive at this season, sometimes we like to put a bow on things and whatever we have to do to feel good about it without coming to that harsh reality. But can I tell you that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus and he wants not just part of our heart, he doesn't want just to be divided and devoted in different directions. 
God's not satisfied with 50% or 60% or 75%. He's not even satisfied with 99% of your heart. God wants everything that you have because his plans for you are better than your plans. Because the fruit that he has in mind for you, the purpose that he has for you, the fulfillment that he has for you is better than what you could do on your own. But it happens when we humble ourselves and say, God, teach me your road. Teach me your path so I can walk in your standard of truth, which is the only standard of truth. Unite my heart. Give me an undivided heart where everything inside of me wants to follow you. That way I will know that I know that I know that I'm living a purposeful life. And I'll have an eternity in front of me that will be spent with only you. That's what God wants. He wants all of us. If God was willing to give that much for us, let me hear you. Shouldn't we be able to give everything that we have back to him? Shouldn't we be able to do that? Not just a part of our heart not just a segment of our heart, but all of our heart back to him. Amen. I want to pray for you this morning. Father, I thank you that in this Christmas season, we can enjoy it with family and friends. We can enjoy all the little details that come along with the season, the tree, the songs, the decor, the fun. We can enjoy all that stuff. But God, all that stuff bows down to the reality that this Christmas season approaches us because we look back and we recognize that you created a way that we could spend eternity with you where our sins would be canceled out, where we'd be forgiven, washed, washed clean as, as snow and white as snow by the blood of the Lamb. I pray today in Jesus' name for people who are here who maybe they've been holding on to segments of their heart hoping that they can take on water and the boat not sink. I pray that you would work on their heart, that you would expose the things that need to be trimmed and need to be pruned so that we can give all of who we are to you. You can have all of us, God, and we can truly have a heart of integrity that follows after you and that's running after you. Be the full Lord of our life, of everything that we have in Jesus' name. And finally, with heads bowed this morning, with eyes closed, just for another moment. Maybe you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with God. Scripture tells us that there's only one way that we can have a relationship with God, and that's by saying yes to Jesus, believing in him, the sacrifice that he made, the fact that he went to the cross for us to pay for our sins, and that after he died, he was raised from the dead so that we could have hope for eternity. God's word clearly tells us that that's how we come into relationship with God. If you're here today and you've never made that decision, you've never made that commitment, I would love to give you the opportunity to walk into that commitment, make a decision to walk with Jesus today, give him your heart, make him the Lord of your life. And we do that by believing in our heart, by confessing with our mouth and saying a simple prayer. There's more to it than that when we walk out that relationship with God, but it starts here. And I want to invite everybody here today to pray a prayer with me. And if you'd like to pray that prayer for the first time, or maybe you'd like to recommit your life to God, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. We're all going to pray it together out loud. But everybody just repeat these words after me and say, Dear Jesus, I thank you for dying for me. I believe that you're the son of God who paid for my sins, who rose from the dead so that I could have hope in this life and all of eternity. So I choose you because you died for me. I'll walk with you for all of my days. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, if you pray that prayer today, it's just the beginning of a journey of walking with God, what it means to be a disciple and following Christ. If that's you, we want to help you in that journey. We want to help you start that journey. 
We have a free gift that we would love to put in your hand, and this is probably the most important thing we'll do this morning for people who are making that decision. But we'd love to give you a free gift. It's called The Next Seven Days. It's just a simple book to help you start your walk with God. We want to give it to you. There's a couple ways you can get it. Right after service, there's going to be some prayer teams down here. If you just come up to one of them and say, today I made that commitment, I made that decision in my heart, and I want to get the book, they'll give it to you. We don't need anything from you. If we can help you, pray with you, point you in any direction, we'll be happy to do that. But let them know you made that decision. They're happy to help you. If you've got to go quickly, please take the time. Stop by the Connection Center. We want to help you start your walk with God. Ask for the book. Let them know, hey, today I made that decision. We want to do life together. We want to walk with Jesus together. And we want to help you in any way that we can in that commitment. If you've made that decision before, can we put our hands together and welcome people into the family of God today?